This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan. Today we're catching up with David and Sue Ellen Taylor. You may remember David from our previous episode when we heard how his years of experience working on the land and passion for the grassland system has informed his local research and how he puts these learnings into practice. In this episode, David is joined by his wife Sue Ellen, who shares how the importance of community was really brought home to them when they lost their home in a devastating house fire. David and Sue Ellen share with us the long journey to recovery and how building their new family home has helped them to reflect on the importance of their local community and fostered a new appreciation for the value of matching both your natural and personal environments into one harmonious system. Local Land Services Mixed Farming Officer Callan Thompson sat down for this emotional chat in one of those sunny spots within the Taylor's incredible new home. So, Ellen, we're sitting in a house that's very different to most farmhouses. <laughs> Can you tell me about how you came to build the house here? I moved to my Isla in 1988 and the house that was here was a renovator's nightmare and over that time we had renovated, extended twice and we just about got it where we wanted it. And that was about 2014 and around December 2014 we were sitting in the house watching cricket and I heard some crackling in the building. We thought it was the air conditioner. Walked around the house, couldn't see anything, opened an office door and flames came out and... Well, we weren't really sure at that stage what was going to happen. David had a fire extinguisher in the house, tried to contain the fire, but that didn't work. Um, I drove into town, which is about two kilometres away, like a bat out of hell, trying to get help. The local cricket team was playing cricket on the oval with Tottenham. They stopped their game. They all got in their cars and they came here. was quite amazing because they took down branches and they were trying to get the fire out. The fire, local fire brigade finally came and then there were lots of other local brigades but there was nothing they could do and it was completely destroyed. Um, takes about, it takes about five minutes from one end to the other, you know, in, a, in an old weather, in a well-cured Cypress turn-of-the-century yeah. house to get it from one side to the other. I went... Um, as Sue Ellen was saying, these, these cricketers, are, you know, the only activity in town were these cricketers sort of thing and, you, you know, they, they hung around. They were playing Tottenham on this particular day and, the, and as they were leaving, you know, the, you know, the house is a, a burning mess, a rubble type of thing and one of these cricketers was learning and I was sitting out on the... Out on the out on the drive with only the clothes I stood up in, and one of these blokes rolled down the window and chucked out his thongs and said, "Here, mate, you you look like you could need these more." Because <laughs> we had no shoes, we hadn't put our shoes and on, I, 
And, of course, we couldn't get any shoes, so David had a pair of thongs thrown at him and I went to our local minister and they gave me a pair of joggers and, you know, the town town was fantastic. My mother-in-law had a house that was empty with just her in it, so we stayed with her for a couple of weeks and then we moved into town and became townies for two years, which was an interesting experience. We were very lucky that one of our neighbours had just renovated her family home in town and it was fully furnished and she offered it to us. So we rented that from her while we rebuilt. We weren't quite sure what to do and in retrospect you, you, you should take a long time to think about it. I mean there were a lot of options. We could have probably built in town because we're so close to town but we chose to rebuild on the same block of land. The insurance company was excellent. Uh, We had the contents insurance within a week. They had assessors out and we weren't quite sure how they'd go because it actually had two storeys to part of the house and we weren't sure that they'd even know that from what we had in the building. And the assessor came and he said, oh, I know it's two storeys because he said the brass bed has landed on top of the bath. So there'd been a brass bed upstairs and as the fire happened and the building collapsed, it just went straight to the bathroom below and it was on top of the bath. He said, that doesn't happen unless there's two storeys. So, you know, there were some interesting things to come out of it. We decided we'd go with an architect. My cousin who's English and lives in England, his son was in Australia and he was an architect and David said, oh, I think your father would like it if we kept it in the family. So we contacted him and his company had never designed a house before and they weren't that interested. But then he rang back and he said, yes, they've decided they'd like to have a look. And the architects are actually, they do a lot in Europe rather than in Australia, but they thought they'd take this on. They came out and had a look at the block. We gave them some guidelines and they came up with some sketches and when I first saw the sketch I thought, whoa, where's that come from? That's completely out of field. And um, David looked at me and said, oh, we only get one chance. Let's have a go at doing this. And I went, "Mm, okay. So we went with a solid passive solar passive design, it's north facing. We wanted views out of every window. We wanted to use locally acquired materials. So it's made from cypress pine weatherboard, which has been burnt. I burnt two and a half kilometres of weatherboards, scorched black. So that's a um, Japanese Japanese process. technique, shushui barn, or I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but it's a Japanese technique. It's meant to to be more fire resistant, which was something we were looking for. It's just got the most amazing angles and outlook. The house is completely look taking, not traditional. <laughs> taking that a taking that a step further, looking at the design brief, I, I'd say that. Traditionally, houses around here were an English house with a veranda tacked on. That's the, that's the Australian colonial architecture sort of thing. There's never been a, 
part of the design suited to the Central West Plains. In other words, you very hot in summer, can, can be fairly cool in the winter type of thing, and, and can you design a house to that, to that sort of thing? Superimposed on top of that, and the Central West Plains get the most magnificent sunsets, you know, probably equal to anywhere in Australia sort of thing. A lot of people that live on the Central West Plains are never aware of it because they haven't got a window that you look out to see this sort of stuff going on. If you're stuck in a house with the, with the, with the curtains closed and that sort of stuff, you're not aware of what goes on outside sort of thing. We have kangaroos hopping past here that you'd never see. You have, you know, there's hundreds of different parrots and, and all sorts of birds of every manner that live here that you never see. If you live in this glass house or bird hide type of thing, they're never out of vision you know that, that's part of the it's it's part of these grasslands sort of thing or the, this grassland environment they're absolutely full of all sorts of weird and wonderful things these are the probably the most underrated ecosystem in australia or anywhere in the world it's really quite amazing the uh, the adaptation to rainfall and climate variability that's just outside your door there waiting to be discovered and as i said no one's researching it no one's looking at it because it's just too hard I guess it, it sort of feels as though we're um, actually still out in the paddock, but we're sitting on a comfortable lounge and it's a bit blowy. There's a bit of wind today and we're not having to deal with that. It's it's really nice to be able to look out into the paddock. It, and- it is. And one of the briefs was that we wanted to be able to look outside, but we also wanted to have different areas to sit. So we don't technically have any verandas but we've got three areas where we can sit and look at the view. So we've got an eastern aspect, a northern aspect and a southwestern aspect. And we thought we'd use them a lot, but because the house is glass, we sit inside and look out. So (laughs) we don't use them nearly as much as we thought we would because you just feel like you're sitting outside already, as you said, Callum. The idea was that the house flowed you know from inside to outside and I'm pretty sure the architects have got that right you know they got a lot of things right and it was a really difficult build it took two years the builder we had was we'd had him before he had done all the extensions on our old house and we think he's really the only one in the area that would have tackled it it had so many challenges for him that I don't think he's built another house since. <laughs> he just, it was just, yeah, it was, and he does it on his own. So we all, we all helped. So, you know, he got in chip rockers and, you know, the glaziers and plumbers and all that sort of thing. But basically he built it himself. I did all the burning of the wood. How many kilometres? Two and a half. <laughs> <laughs> and each, each piece of wood was uh, five metres long and took about 20 minutes to burn. That's a bit of trivia. <laughs> um, and there's different ways of burning. The You know, you want to get that sort of crocodile effect, but some woods wouldn't burn as well as others because the sap was different. And it was, yeah, it was quite a learning experience and there's still more to go. You mentioned you could have built a house in town and and you could have easily just built a house straight off a plan and and a big building company could have come in and done it. After losing a house that I'm sure had lots of memories in it, it takes a fair bit of resilience to actually step up and go, right, I'm going to build a new house where the old one stood and I'm going to make it something that's that's different. How did you find the, the energy, I guess, to step into this project? I don't know. It was hard. Well, it, it, it wasn't easy. And it 
it, it never it never went as fast as we would have liked it to go but you just get up each day and you just do it and and i i was still working full time when all this was going on but I, about 6 months into it i was getting close to retiring anyway but I took long service leave. There was no way I could, because I was really project managing it. I couldn't do that plus teach full time. Looking back, the first six months after the fire really is just a blur. All the people that have gone through the bushfires, I know exactly how they're feeling because you really don't know what's going on. And it takes a long time to be able to think clearly and and move forward and you just take one step at a time. There's always another calamity going on somewhere at the moment. Floods, droughts, bushfires, you name it. So you you have uh, you know fortunate to live in a in a small community on the on the central west plains where that there's a hell of a lot of community support. You're supported by a social system that's evolved to the environment. We're all a product of our environment with extraordinary resilience and extraordinary support mechanisms and all, all that sort of stuff. I think our kids, uh, you know, one day will recognise how, how important it was to be brought up in that sort of environment. So our environment that I guess is very variable and can be quite high risk is making everything adapt to it. So our pastures have adapted, our, our merinos have had to adapt and and we as community and people within this area have had to adapt to it as well. I think that's one of the hallmarks of the small communities aside. And I can't discount the, the role of communities, people talking to one another in the evolution of farming systems. The whole the whole thing is meshes together type of thing. You know, the you know, the hypothesis for the research and all that sort of stuff come from farmers talking to farmers and and you have a community structure that enables communication or easy communication. Sport and social organisations have an extremely important role to play in that whole process sort of thing. I guess one of the things that's a little bit disturbing is is the trend towards industrialised agricultural systems that, uh, that are not reliant on community so much anymore, but there there could be different sorts of community out there that I'm not aware of that that happen on the internet and all that and all that sort of stuff. But it was just so important at, at one stage. For example, uh, Woodview were the biggest wheat growers in the British Commonwealth in the 1930s or 40s. They they you're, I think you're going to interview Chris one day. So Chris's people came here in about the 1880s from England sort of thing. They grew Woodview to the stage where, where they were cropping uh, five or 6,000 acres, all with horse teams sort of thing, a big operation for that, you know. You couldn't even put that in context when you've got 120-foot boom spray machines and, the, and that sort of thing today. You know, the, 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 the men and machines that were, that were involved in, in, this, in this process. One of the characteristics of the the Berry family at that stage was the extraordinary support that they gave to the community here because they knew that that, that's where they got their workers from, that's where they... Uh, that's where they got their support from, sort of things. They, they built the Swaggies Rest down there, which I think is the is quite unique. In other words, they had the bagman that passed through here in the Depression, sort of thing. So they built a they built a, a humpy out on the uh, out on the edge of town here for them to, to for them to camp in, sort of thing. I think mostly to keep them off the oval. 
they, 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 there's the Berry Uniting Church, and they, they, you know, they, they were involved in every organisation, and the, and the people that worked for them were expected to be involved in every organisation in the town, and that sort of stuff. It's a little bit like Sidney Kidman, you know, the, you know, always brought the cattle down to Adelaide, and he always made sure that it wasn't necessarily the highest buyer that bought bought the cattle type of thing. He knocked them down to just to keep the all the butchers and competition in in business sort of thing. He knocked it down to various people. So they had this sense that they didn't operate in isolation, that that, that the community or the support system were very, very important to their businesses. We did start to get a bit of a name, though, in the community because we actually had three fires within 12 months. Okay. So I don't know whether Pip is aware of that, but the house fire was the third fire. 12 months before that, on the home property, uh, a neighbour was welding, angle grinding, and a fire went through Prospect and went within 100 metres, 50 metres of the house. And David's mother and Pip were in the house and had no idea that there was a fire. Went through our, because we've got salt bush plantation, burnt through all the salt bush, and we had to recover from that. And then six months later, David's four-wheel motorbike caught on fire in the middle of the paddock and then we had the house fire. So we had three fires within 12 months. So it was very challenging times, very challenging times. A lot of memories were were lost but there's potential for some of David's research to have been lost as well in the fire. Was anything able to be saved? We saved the computer. That had all his research on it. The take-home messages is always, always, always escape with the computer. But then, <laughs> with the cloud these days, you don't even need but that. I don't suppose the office, the computer wasn't in the office. So what had happened? The kids, the girls were still at home, and we wouldn't let the computer go into the office. We had it in the family room so we could watch what they were doing on the computer. And if we hadn't done that. It would have been in the office and all his research would have gone up in flames. So it was in the a family room and he just grabbed it under his arm and went out with it when the fire started. Didn't think of anything else. No driver's licences or, you know, wallets or anything like that, but he had his computer. And so, your pictures, friend. Very good. Well, thank you for um, taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.